Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your consciences. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you may have a reply for those who take pride in outward appearance rather than in the heart. For if we are out of our mind, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion, that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. From now on, then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. In uh, 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7, we have one of the most gruesome stories in the Bible. It's a story about the siege of Samaria. It takes place about 850 years before Jesus is born. Ben-Hadad is the Syrian king. I hope I said that right the first time. Uh, and the uh, arch enemy of the Samaritans, arch enemies of the people of Israel. And the plan is to put a siege of the city and, make, and, and starve them out. And their plan has been pretty effective. So much so that 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 25 said that the famine was so bad that a donkey's head sold for 34 ounces of silver, or about $1,000, and a cup of dove's dung sold for two ounces of silver. That'd be about $50. And you think, and you think that inflation is bad today. Some people are even resorting to, or at least considering, cannibalism. In the midst of this desperation, the scene suddenly turns to focus on four lepers. We have this conversation. One leper says, we need to do something. The leper says, well, what are we supposed to do? The leper says, well, why don't we just go and surrender to the Syrian army? Somebody says, because they'll kill us, maybe. And the guy says, yeah, but if we stay here, we die. If we go there, we may die, but they may give us food. And they're like, yeah, we don't have anything to lose, so why don't we go? So this is the scene. Four starving lepers headed toward the Syrian army, hands up in surrender. In the meantime, the Bible says, God caused this great thunderous sound in the Syrian camp that sounded like just a mass of horses and chariots and armies. And the Syrian army panics. They say, the Samaritan king has hired the Hittites and the Egyptian armies to come get us. We get better get out of here while the getting's good. And so they leave immediately and leave everything behind, all their provisions. So, sometime later, who comes in the camp, toward the camp, but these mighty warrior lepers with their hands raised, ready to surrender. And they're kind of like, uh, guys, we surrender hello, nobody's here. And they look in one tent and they find salad and vegetables, hors d'oeuvres. They open another tent, they see lamb chops and roast beef and barbecue and chicken and turkey. And, and what do they do at that point? They do exactly what you do. They're like, 
there's got to be a dessert tent around here somewhere. No, they start gorging themselves. And as they're gorging themselves, one of them says, hey, stop, this is not right. People that we love are back in Samaria fighting over donkey heads and dove's dung. And here we are feasting. Verse 9 of chapter 7, what we're doing here is not right. Today is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until morning light, our punishment will catch up with us. You know, we deserve what we get. We got to go share the good news. And so they race back to Samaria and share the good news. We've hit the jackpot, food for everybody. The starvation is over. And how do people respond? Incredulity. We don't believe it. It's a trap. They're ambushing us. And they don't care that people are arguing with them. They don't care that people don't believe them. They have salvation for Samaria, and they won't stop sharing until people start believing. And they do believe, and the people are saved. Now, Christians have recognized through the years that this true account in history serves as a parable for us. Somebody said that Christianity is nothing more than one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are starving people who realize that we have found the bread of life for our spiritual starvation. That in Jesus, we're starving for forgiveness and we find grace. In Jesus, we're starving for purpose and we find meaning as we walk with him. In Jesus, we're starving for a refuge and he is our refuge and strength. He is our good shepherd. In Jesus, we're starving for a place to belong and we find that in the church. We're starving for hope and we find that in the one who rose from the dead and said, because I live, you will live also. And that's why the Bible says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. And once we know the good news that we have, we just can't keep it to ourselves. Like starving shepherds, like starving lepers, we have to take it to others. Jesus says, go and make disciples. And so we do. But it's not easy because people don't always want to listen. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul not only challenges us to share our faith, he actually gives us great wisdom on how to do so effectively. Now I hope, I know that this is a, a, a cautious moment for all of us. Um, I know there's a lot of fear and dread that goes into this because nobody wants to look silly and, 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 and it's maybe especially dangerous these days. Let's listen to what Paul says. I think he'll give us wisdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true and your spirit is living and active. Do work in us right now beyond my words. Would you give inspiration? Would you give vision? Would you give encouragement? Through Christ I pray. Amen. If we're going to share Jesus effectively, I think the first thing we need is motivation. We need a sufficient motivation. Paul gives us a couple of motivations in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 11. Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. What we are is plain to God. I hope it is also plain to your conscience. The first thing that motivates us to share our faith is 
That's our identity. Paul says, we try to persuade people, that's who we are. It's plain to God, plain to you. Sharing Jesus, making disciples, being disciples who make disciples is not just an assignment. Do you see it just as an assignment for you, as an option, or is it the way you see yourself? Later on in verse 20, the Apostle Paul will say, we are ambassadors for Christ. All that we do is as ambassadors. We're going to talk more about this next week. Second motivation that the Apostle Paul points out is Christ's love, verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us, he says. Since we've reached this conclusion that one died for all, therefore all died. We share the good news because we understand that people are lost without Jesus. That we're dead in our trespasses and sins, as Paul says in another place. Here in verse 11, Paul has already said, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. Now, the fear of the Lord is not a terror of him. It's a proper respect for him. It's a proper understanding of his greatness and his presence. Wayne Barclay said, it is not the fear of of a dog that cowers awaiting a whipping. It's that reverence that keeps even a thoughtless man from doing things that would break the heart of someone he loves. Knowing the fear of the Lord. Um, last night, did you see that the Webb, the James Webb telescope has found, has discovered things deep in the universe that they say may completely uh, basically completely re-educate us on our beliefs about the beginning of the universe. After all the research that we've done, the more we get to know the universe, the more we understand some of our assumptions are wrong. We don't know the depths of the universe, but there is one who does, and that is the maker of the universe. And the more we get to know about the universe, the more we understand the respect of the one who made the universe, who understands at all, knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing that everybody one day will stand before their creator, we persuade people. I think there are a lot of, several reasons that we aren't motivated to share our faith. I think for most Christians, it's not a lack of compassion so much as a lack of understanding of just how lost people are. Missionaries talk about if you're going to get people saved, you've got to get them lost first. In other words, before people need, know they need a Savior, they need to understand they're lost and need a Savior. I think before you can persuade people that they need to share Jesus, you really have to convince people the people around you are really lost. And it really is your responsibility to share. I think it's one of the reasons I'm so moved by that scene in the movie Titanic, a part of what moves me is that it's historically accurate. You know, when the Titanic went down, um, many of the lifeboats were half empty. They could have added more people. And once the Titanic, in this scene, the Titanic has submerged, and there are thousands of people in the freezing in the waters of the North Atlantic, and they're crying out 
for help. They're crying for these boats to come back and rescue them before they freeze to death. The scene that you're about to see is a scene that actually took place probably more than once. And I want you to be aware of your own emotions as you watch this and you think about this situation. Let's watch this together, please. You don't understand. If we go back, they'll swamp the boat. They'll pull us right down, I'm telling you. Knock it off. You're scaring me. Come on, girls. Grab an oar. Let's go. Are you out of your mind? We're in the middle of the North Atlantic. Now, do you people want to live or do you want to die? I don't understand a one of you. What's the matter with you? It's your men out there. There's plenty of room for more. The famous unsinkable Molly Brown. How do you feel when you watch that and you think, there were boats that could save people, but they did not go back because they wanted to protect their own lives. They didn't want to risk it. They were saved. Why risk their lives for others? Makes you angry, doesn't it? You think, how can you not? Knowing the fear of the Lord, the love of Christ compels us. I watch that scene, and it makes me think of a friend of many of ours, uh, Vince Antonucci. Vince was our first full-time staff person. Um, Vince, I was in touch with Vince this week. I think he's going to come speak for us later this year. But um, he's a hoot. You'll love Vince. Vince grew up, his dad was a professional gambler. He is now a church planter in Las Vegas. Things go full circle. But his mom was Jewish. They never went to church. Vince grew up an atheist. He went to college to study political science and philosophy. He wanted to go into politics because he believed that politics, that's where the action is. And so he goes into politics. So he's studying in college. And one Easter Sunday, he sees some Christian guy on television say something, and he says, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. I've never read the Bible. I've read all this philosophy. I've never read the Bible. I'm going to read the Bible so I can laugh at Christians. Didn't own a Bible. Never owned a Bible. Had to go buy a Bible. So he goes to Bible, Bible, opens it up, completely expecting to read about Babe and his blue ox creating the Grand Canyon as they carry around their axe or something like that. And, and, and he discovers... Um, and he discovers this doesn't read like fiction. This doesn't read like fable. This talk about real people in real times, real places that can really be verified. And he continues to read. And the more he reads, the more he believes. And he finally comes to faith. Vincent Antonucci came to faith by reading the Bible. And no Christian ever talked to him about Christ. And so when Vince gets up to speak, by the way, he gives his life to Christ and then decides, I'm going to go into ministry because that's where the action is. It's kingdom stuff. It's eternal stuff. And then he decides, I'm not just going to go into ministry. I'm going to go into starting churches that start churches because there's no more effective way to reach people like me, Vince said, than starting new churches. And so that's why he was our first church planter. That's why he came to New Life. He was our first church planter. And now he's planted a church in Las Vegas that plants churches in the most difficult places in the world. Having said that, when Vince talks to people, to Christians, he likes to get in front of a Christian audiences and say, the reason I'm in ministry and the reason I start churches is because I'm angry at you. He needs therapy, I think. We've talked about that. No, 
uh, he's really, I mean, think about this. He says, I'm angry at you because you never shared the gospel with me. He said, I grew up around, and I, I, I've known Christians all my life, but not one cared enough about me to invite me to church. Not one of you cared enough about me to ask a spiritual question. He said, you didn't even offer me a Bible. I had to buy my own Bible. So I start, so I went to ministry because I want to start churches that reach people so there won't be people who are like I was with nobody to share Jesus with them. If you understand the feeling of, that we have watching that scene and think, how can those people not go save the people who are drowning and freezing? That's how Vince feels about Christians who don't share their faith. See, for God so loved the world that Jesus came back to rescue us. So how do you get started? You know, I encourage you, pray. I know you're feeling, you're like, I don't even know where to get started. Okay, have you prayed about how to get started? Have you just said to God, I don't know where to get started. God, I don't know who to talk about. And just pray every day. I I don't know who to talk to. God, I don't know who to talk to. God, you need to give me somebody to talk to. God, show me the way. God, prepare for me. Tell me what I need to say. Prepare me to say. Prepare the person for me to talk to them. Can you think about specific people that you know that you're not sure where they are spiritually? Maybe you know they don't go to church somewhere. You need to judge their salvation, but you need to be praying. Lord, am I supposed to be having a spiritual conversation with this person? And then, can you start a conversation? You know, the reason we do so much of what we do around here is to help you start conversations. When we started New Life, I remember thinking, I want to start a church that makes it easy for people to share their faith. I want to start a church that the way we do Sunday morning makes it easy for people to invite their friends to come on Sunday morning because they know they'll experience God in some fresh way. I want to start a church that, that we do advertisement and we do special events and we do marriage conferences and we send out uh, advertise, like I said, or we'll give you invitations to invite people to Easter Sunday. You know we, the reason we do that? The reason we do that is not so, as a church, we can kind of organizationally evangelize people. The reason we do that is because three out of four people say that they will respond to an invitation by a friend to church. Um, most people are led to Christ by a friend or family member, not by an impersonal organization or system. And so the reason we have an end zone even is to give you an excuse. I mean, one of the reasons, we, part of it is we want to be good stewards, but it's to be, we thought if we're going to spend $12 million on a building, it had better be to help people share their faith with others. It had better be a great way to help you start conversations, to invite people into a spiritual conversation. Can you start a spiritual conversation? You know, we have people around here do all the time. They'll just, uh, maybe wherever they are, maybe they'll be in their neighborhood, maybe they'll be in a restaurant, and they'll just say to somebody, hey, I'm praying for people. How, how can I pray for you today when I pray? Is there anything I can pray for you? And maybe it goes nowhere. Sometimes people say, no, I'm fine, you know, or pray for my kids. You know, that's a, that's a common one. But okay, how can I pray for your kids? Um, but often it, Often it's, every once in a while, you can tell it's a preordained conversation by God. Hockey players have a saying. I think it was Wayne Gretzky, I don't know. But it's a, a, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. 
If it wasn't Green, Wayne Gretzky, we'll give him credit anyway. Um, that, anyway, you miss, how many shots are you missing just because you never take them? Right? The caps. How many times are they frustrated with the caps? Because it's like, you need to take a shot on goal. You need to take a shot on goal this week. Can you start? And then you celebrate. You know what we celebrate? We don't celebrate fruit. We don't just celebrate fruit. We celebrate obedience. John chapter 15 tells us that God is the one who produces the fruit. We can't produce fruit. We can't force fruit. We're called to obey. You obey that you've, you, you celebrate that you've prayed. You celebrate that you've tried to start a conversation. You celebrate that you've offered to pray for somebody else. And then see what God does. We don't, we can't always experience fruitfulness. We can always experience obedience. Who are you going to pray for this week? Who are you going to start a conversation with this week? Who are you praying for? You're in the boat. People are crying out. You have the opportunity to go. Who will you invite next week or this month? And then give feedback, by the way. Let other people know what you're doing so we can encourage each other along the way. We need to have sufficient motivation, but we also need to have a clear message to share. What are we going to say? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, for the love of Christ compels us since we've reached this conclusion. One died for all, therefore all died. That's a pretty good, that's a pretty succinct description of the gospel. This is the gospel. We are all dead without Christ. Jesus died so we could live. We're all dead. Separated from God because of our sin. Jesus died so we can live. Verse 15, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised again. Can I share with you a tool that many have found helpful to lead in that conversation? Because something, you know, it's, it's helpful to know, like when you preach, it's helpful to know where you start and what you need to say and where you're going to go, okay? If you're going to share your faith, it's not a bad idea to have an idea of kind of where am I going to start, where am I going to go? I'm going to share with you what we call the three circles. There's a piece of paper on your seat, on your chair. There's a pen for you. You say, Brett, some people say, Brett, you've shared the three circles before so many times. And yes, I have. But you know what I keep hearing? I keep hearing people say, but I don't know how to, I don't know the three circles. I couldn't share the three circles. Okay, so practice. Okay, that's why we put them down there for you to practice. You're in the boat. Are you going to practice? Maybe I need to make this point before I go further. How many of you would play baseball and the first time you ever pick up a bat is when you're in the middle of a game? How many of you would play a clarinet solo and the first time you pick up a clarinet is the middle of a concert? You say, you'd never do that. You need to practice. Yeah. So, so many Christians say, I don't, I don't know how to share the faith. I just can't do it. Well, have you practiced? You can't expect to pick up a bat and start being able to be effective in the middle of the game. So you're going to begin practicing right now. Or if I were a really good preacher, I would have you practice this over and over again. We'd stop right now and you'd preach, you'd share it with somebody else. I'm not that good of a preacher, but you are going to follow me with this right now. Okay, this is the conversation that I would have if I would, one way to have the conversation. I like to begin with areas of agreement. Begin, I just draw a circle over here and say, you know what everyone agrees with? How would you describe the world today? I think everybody agrees the world that we live in is kind of messed up. It is far from perfect. You know, one word you might use is 
broken. Give us some words. Tell me some words that you would use to describe people today. Boy, people today are, what'd you say? Chaotic. Chaotic. Yeah, it's chaotic. People are in crisis. People are, it's frustrated, angry, sometimes hostile, scared, depressed, meaningless, hopeless. Broken families, broken lives, broken dreams. You can get in this conversation, people. Now, some people say positive things. Well, there's, there's love in this. Yeah, there is. And there's good relationships and, and people serving. That's wonderful. But it's all under this kind of haze of brokenness. It's, not, it's far from what we would like it to be, isn't it? You ever notice what people do to try to get out of brokenness? What, what they do to try to feel better about themselves because they're broken? People do stuff. I tell you what I've done sometimes. I, I've, I've gone to work. It's like if I can just work hard enough, it makes me feel good if I can work. If I can just achieve, that makes me feel good. Some people turn to like entertainment. Boy, if I can just go on vacation, you know. Um, some people will turn to things like relationships. Boy, if we can just find the right relationship. If I can just find Mr. Wright. If I can just find Mrs. Wright. And some people will go through like, some Hollywood stars will go through like five Mr. Wrights in all their lives trying to look for Mr. Wright and Mr. Wright's never found. Some people, you know, they'll try drugs or alcohol. You know, you can't have a party unless you're drunk five minutes into it. That's really partying. Some people will you know, try religion. If I, if I can just be a really good person, if I can just be, do religious activities, that'll make... But the reality is all this stuff that we do to try to deal with our brokenness, it doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't make us unbroken. It doesn't bring us to... You know the other thing that we would all agree with? We all agree with... We'd love to live in a world that's perfect... If you describe a perfect world, what would that look like? Perfect relationships, perfect peace, perfect joy, perfect marriages, perfect families, perfect jobs, perfect meaning, maybe some perfect baseball teams or like one perfect sports team in the mirror or one decent sports team in Washington. You know, we desire to live in that perfect world. Isn't that interesting? Why do you think we desire to live in that perfect world even though we're broken people? Can I share with you what I believe? I, I, think, that we're ma- I think God made us to, for perfection. The Bible tells us, in fact, that God created the world to be perfect. That's the Garden of Eden. And, he, and, and we all long for heaven. What is heaven except a perfect place? We long, in fact, when everybody dies, what do we hope? We hope we're going to that perfect place. But here we live in brokenness. Now here's the question. Why do you think we live in brokenness? How do you think we got to this place? Have you ever thought about that? It's important for us to make... <laughs> I, I, by the way, I've, I've changed this all the time, and so you can as well. But it's important for us to be able to diagnose the problem because if you're going to understand the solution, you've got to know the problem first. My brother Phil and I both had a coach. His was a varsity, the same coach. His coach was in varsity, coach mine was like junior high. But um, football coach, he diagnosed every problem. Every injury was the same. Every injury for him was a was a was a was a uh, a, a torn muscle. 
you know, uh, yeah, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Pulled muscle, thank you. Pulled muscle, pulled muscle. Yeah, <laughs> Phil, said, Phil said their quarterback broke his collarbone, and the first thing the coach said was, oh, I'm sure it's just a pulled muscle. You know, you could have a compound fracture with the bone hanging out, and he'd probably say, just put a little Bengay on that. It's probably just a pulled muscle. Wrong diagnosis, wrong solution. You know what the Bible tells us, and, and I think is true, makes sense to me? The Bible tells us that although God made us for perfection, that he gave us the ability to choose perfection or not, to love him or not, to obey him or not. And at the beginning of time when human beings, when Adam and Eve chose not to love him, that's called sin, imperfection. And when sin entered the world, it's like poison. It broke the whole thing. You don't need a whole bunch of poison to ruin your glass of water. Just a little bit of poison will do. And that sin poisoned the whole system. Now we're in brokenness. You know what I think the solution is? You know what I found? The Bible says in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. The Bible says that Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus is God. He came down to us in perfection. He lived a perfect life. And then he died on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice to pay for our sin so that when he died on the cross, if we will accept his sacrifice, then we get his perfection and he takes our sin. What happened on the cross is that Jesus pays the price, he takes our sin, we get his purity and perfection. So when God sees us, he sees us as perfect in Christ. That's what it means. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Now, how do you receive that? There's a difference between the offer and, and reception, right? You have to receive a gift, not just be given a gift. Well, the first word is believe. You have to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus did die for us, that Jesus is the King. But then another word that the Bible uses is the word turn. We have to turn our lives over to Jesus. In fact, in the passage that we're looking at today, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. If God is holy and Jesus came down to make us holy and righteous, doesn't it make sense that we live for him and we desire to live a holy life? We desire to follow him. The Bible says he's our good shepherd. He take, leads us down paths of righteousness. And so we turn to him. And I would ask the question, do you have any questions about this? And they may. They probably will. Where do you see yourself in this picture? They may ask you questions that you can answer. They may ask you questions you can't answer. That's okay. If they ask you a question you can't answer, I have a really easy solution. Just tell them, you know, give me a minute. I'll call Pat Ferguson, and he'll give me the answer so that he can. Um, but the key there is... That's the message. That ba basically, that's 
one died for all because all died. How will you share that message? But the key is you have to practice. Author Lily Barana uh, uh, talks about her depression that took her to the brink of suicide. Even as a small child, she suffered with depression. She went to church for a while growing up, and, but as she became an adult, she quit going to church, got married, started working, and yet depression still gripped her. She says, I teetered on the brink of suicide. Even with the outward show of a full and happy life, I had a husband, a family, health, career. I felt desperate, alone, scarred, stained, and worthless. Listen to me. We live in a world filled with people just like this woman. She looks like she has it all together. She has the perfect life. Happy home, happy husband, happy job. But inside, she's dying, scarred, lonely, desperate, stained. I asked God for a sign, she said. I feel like he gave me one. So cautiously, I returned to church. I would love to tell you that God reached down and whisked away my depression by faith, but faith has only made living with it more manageable. It helps that I take my meds, but I can't give full credit for my well-being to my medicines, for nothing has helped me recover more than receiving the grace of God. Depression, she says, is most often an invisible illness. People don't know you have it unless you tell them. Through faith in Christ, I feel less alone, less ashamed, less likely to conceal my suffering. I'm beholding things with peace and depth I've never experienced before, and through Christ I am redeemed, the slate wiped clean. She says, I was dead, but Jesus died for me, and now my slate is clean. He is my Savior and my King, my Good Shepherd, and every day we rub shoulders with women like Lily Barana and young men like Vince Antonucci, anxious, discouraged, chaotic, lonely, suffering, lost, and you have the words of life. What an honor. What a great calling that God has entrusted you. One died for all, therefore all were dead. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. One final thing I would mention that we need, and that is an attractive urgency. Verse, chapter 6, verse 1 says, so we also make this appeal to you, don't receive the grace of God in vain. And the end of verse 2 says, see, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. There is an attractive urgency that usually has a lot to do, more to do with listening than talking. We'll talk more about that next week. But it begins with owning lostness. A friend of mine was asked by people, what's the most important thing I need if I'm going to lead people to Christ? He said, love God more every day and see the world through his eyes. Love God more every day and love people through the eyes of God and you will discover ways to share the good news of Jesus. I remember years ago, Ben Merrill told the story of being invited 
to teach church growth to a church in South Carolina. And this is years ago. Ben Merrill at the point was a minister at a large growing church in Indianapolis. This church in South Carolina was frustrated because they'd only been able to grow to about 700, 750. They'd hit a plateau and they, hadn't, and they were really frustrated. They couldn't reach more people. What do they need to do? What do they need to change? Ben Merrill said he went to that church and everything they were doing was wrong. You know, he said he got there and, and it's like whatever the book said, they did the opposite. He said there, the question for him the whole weekend was not why couldn't they grow. His question was how in the world have they grown to the point that they have? And then he got the answer when they took him to the airport. This was before 9-11, several years before 9-11. He said a group of people took him to the airport and stayed with him as he waited for his plane and as he sat there, he overheard all the conversations around him. You know what people were talking about? He said, all these conversations going on, everybody talking about how do we reach more people? How do we reach our friends? I'm praying for this friend. I had this conversation with that friend. Because what you need more than a method is a heart. God's heart for lost people that gives you a sense of urgency that now is the accepted time. Today is the day of opportunity. Martin Neimuller, I've shared with you the story before, was a Lutheran minister in World War II, Germany. Uh, even though it was not popular to talk politics, he preached against Hitler. Got thrown into a concentration camp. One night in the middle of a concentration, one night when he was in the concentration camp, he said he had a horrible dream and he woke up in a cold sweat. He said in that dream, he heard the voice of God at judgment say, what's your excuse? And he heard a voice behind him say, nobody ever shared Jesus with me. He said he woke up in a cold sweat because he recognized the voice behind him was the voice of Adolf Hitler. And he remembered several years ago in the mid-1930s, when he sat beside Hitler at a banquet for two hours, he sat beside Hitler and he made small talk. He thought about asking him about spiritual things, but he thought, no, not tonight. Tonight, I'll just befriend him and I'll look for a more opportune time, but the more opportune time never came. Now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. You have no idea the opportunities that God is going to give you and me today, this week. Can we do it? I can't do it on my own. Is there spiritual warfare? Yeah, we're all going to be a little, most of us are going to be a little bit nervous. There will be a couple of people who won't be a little bit nervous, but we don't like those people very much. The rest of us get nervous when we have these conversations and we have to depend on God but allow that dependence on God to make you that much more urgent with the heart of God. There are hundreds of thousands of people living around us who don't know Jesus. You ever think about that? A lot of churches count the saved. They're really proud of themselves because of the number of people that are in their auditoriums. Ying Kai started over 450,000 churches in China, and he said, it's because I didn't count the saved, I counted the lost. He started a church that had 250 people at first, after a couple of years, and he thought, there are, how many billions of people are lost in China? He counted the lost, and God 
allowed him to reach millions. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Christianity is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. Heavenly Father, give us your heart. Give us your urgency. Make us your church. Um, Heavenly Father, is there anything in our hearts right now that we need to offer in repentance to you? I know that there is, and I'm, I know there are blind spots in me. Lord, I'm convinced that people here really do love you and want to obey you, and they're wrestling now, right now with what obedience looks like. Lord, I want you, would you walk with us in your power Would you work with us as your people in this generation so that we can stand before you one day and know that we've done our best so the future generations can look back on us and see an example to follow, not an example that's embarrassing? Lord, help us to be faithful in our time. This is our generation. This is the people that, this is the generation you've given to us. We thank you that you are greater than any enemy that opposes us. So Lord, do your will in us. Make us your church. Through Christ we pray. Amen.